You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Caskell, presented by the National Lipid Association. Celebrities often influence the way we dress, but when a celebrity dies of a heart attack, do they impact the way we take care of ourselves? When a public figure dies from a sudden heart attack, our media-obsessed society can't get enough of the details. While it's clear that celebrities can influence fashion, do they actually have an impact on how we take care of our health? My guest today is Dr. James Ehrlich. Dr. Ehrlich is the Chief Medical Officer of Athrotech, Inc., and he is an authority in the integration of imaging, physiologic, and laboratory technologies with conventional office-based assessment. Dr. Ehrlich has delivered over 150 lectures to physician audiences on three continents during the past five years and is also director and founding member of the Society of Atherosclerosis Imaging. James, welcome back to Lipid Luminations. Thank you. So when someone dies that is well-known from a heart attack, and as you know, many people are dying of a heart attack every day, but these are the guys that get the attention, what happens with a coronary risk assessment center? Do they see more patients for a week or two and then it kind of dies down again? Exactly. I think you get a temporary blip. I think people basically live in a state of denial, and they have to relate strongly to the individual who has succumbed to a heart attack to send the message that they should be checked. So in general, these centers are seeing patients who have colleagues that seem more fit than they are suddenly drop dead, or a marathon runner that they know, or a family member. So the wake-up call, there's really very little call to action for early detection. Most of us are sitting in front of the television set with a bag of Doritos, and to get somebody to find out information that might scare them is not easy. So when we hear about celebrities, generally there is a feeling of vulnerability. Right, if it could happen to them. If it could happen to them, presumably they have the best doctors in the world, Presumably, they have fitness trainers and are eating right and, and all those things. There is a marked transmission of this feeling of vulnerability, which affects a lot of people early on. And then within a period of a few weeks, there is the general dismissal of that information, mm-hmm. and people go back to their normal. Right. We go back to the denial of death. Right. Yeah, in my practice, it's usually either the next-door neighbor or a brother or, like you said, a colleague at work that was fine one day. And the story is always the same. They went in, they had a stress test, they were told they were fine, next day they dropped dead. So let's talk about that whole stress test concept. Let's do a thallium stress test, someone passes it. You and I both know you can pass it with flying colors and have, you know, 20 vulnerable plaques that are 30% stenotic. That's right, and that's the usual situation. So... The overwhelming majority of people who are asymptomatic will pass every stress test in the world in the weeks prior to their devastating event. Now, when we look at it the other way, which is, what about people who have true indications for a thallium stress test? A very important study by Dan Berman and his colleagues over at Cedars-Sinai looked at that situation, and the majority of individuals who passed their stress test who would have been told you're fine, actually have a CHD equivalent amount of plaque. In other words, they have enough 
coronary atherosclerosis as measured by electron beam tomography, that they have the same risk as somebody who's already had a heart attack. So if you're at high enough risk to get a thallium, you should expect to pass it. In most cases, in this study, 92% of people actually passed their thallium, and yet a full 56% of them had a coronary calcium score greater than 100, so they were really at high risk, and yet would have been told by most physicians, congratulations, you passed your stress test. So I think a thallium should be saved for someone who is symptomatic to see if they have obstructive disease. That's right, and that's the recommendations of most societies. I think it's a greatly overutilized test. The concern is also radiation. We're talking about equivalent to about 800 chest X-rays with mm-hmm. a thallium and about 250 to 350 with a cardiolite. So this is not a trivial amount of radiation, and it should be reserved for those people who you're now trying to make a decision, is this obstructive coronary disease? And what about how much radiation do we see in just a cardiac calcium scan versus a CTA? A coronary calcium scan, if it's done with electron beam tomography, it's 0.7 millisieverts, which is about 14 chest X-rays. If it's done with a uh, 64 slice scanner, about triple the amount of radiation. Still not a huge amount. So it sounds like it's less than a thallium, though. Oh, much, much less. And then a CT angiogram is generally in the neighborhood of about 400 to 500 chest Mm X-rays, about 14 millisieverts, depending on technique. Now, there is a very promising pill that has just been developed by a group of radiation biologists and antioxidant scientists that will be broadly promoted in the next few months that one can take before any imaging procedure and will very satisfactorily abolish or quench the free radicals that are generated by ionizing radiation. And so, and that's name, sir. And that is called BioShield developed by Premier Micronutrient Corporation out of Nashville, Tennessee. So it's a very nice pill that will be available uh, fairly soon. Let's pick a celebrity, one celebrity that we're all familiar with, the recent death of Tim Russert. According to Tim's physicians, he was in good care. His lipids, if you looked at his lipids, were pretty good. He was on a statin. His HDL probably could have been higher. We know that he did have atherosclerotic disease. I think he did have a coronary calcium scan at one time. But it seems like we failed him. It seems like we did not do enough. Well, you know, Tim was taken care of by a very good clinician in Washington, D.C., who thought highly enough of early detection that he ordered an EBCT heart scan way back in 1998. And it was that time that we knew that Tim was a CHD equivalent and had more plaque than 90 of men his age. So conventional therapy from 1998 to very recently would be to put somebody on a plaque-stabilizing drug, and that's what was done. And Tim had a good response to that as far as LDL lowering. Now, it's only really been in the last few years that we've appreciated the concept of residual risk. And Tim Russert could be considered a poster child for this concept by just looking at him. Yeah, he had metabolic syndrome, and in talking to his doctor, he probably also did have sleep apnea, although it was never tested, it was uh, recommended to him. So Tim had the criteria for metabolic syndrome, and we know now that if an ApoB had been looked at, that would have been still very high, even in the face of an LDL of 68, which is what his LDL was 
uh, six weeks before he died. He passed his stress test repeatedly, including six weeks before his death. Sure, as we know that most people will. Yeah, and so he's an example of how aggressively subclinical disease can progress. And so his calcium score might have been in the thousands a couple of years ago. And other things, if you look at him, there are some that question that he just returned from a long flight from Italy, and that somehow sitting on a plane and being at a high altitude somehow may have triggered some sort of prothrombotic milieu leading to a clot. Well, this is very possible. We should think about coronary heart disease as having two basic elements. There's atherosclerosis, which we clearly developed, the development of plaque, and then there's thrombosis, and there's a triggering event. So atherosclerosis, in a sense, loads the gun, and a rupture of plaque or some triggering episode can pull the trigger. And so it very well could be that this kind of stress ultimately ruptured a plaque. But I think the lesson really is that we're in a new era now. Tim was treated by conventional therapy that most people would believe was adequate, but he went through probably eight or nine years of subclinical coronary atherosclerosis progression. And then really in the last year of his life, he was on triple therapy. He was on niospan, he was on fibrates, he was on statins. So it's amazing. We're now in a new era where people coming in now with coronary disease or evidence of of risk factors can be treated more aggressively because LDL lowering is just not enough. All right. So I want to know what else we can do for these people. If he's on triple therapy, we've got his lipids under control. He's on an aspirin. Let's say he's on his fish oil. Is there something else that we should be thinking about that may be not FDA approved that might improve his antioxidant levels so that we're still kind of maximizing what we're doing for him? Well, I think in the case of Russert, it's hard to undo nine years Mm -hmm. of what turned out to be monotherapy with therapy that was actually more aggressive in his last year. So unfortunately, he slipped through the cracks. Most of us who are aggressive consider adding things like fish oil, adding, getting LDL as low as possible, looking at residual risk factors and doing advanced lipid testing. Maybe there's something we're missing, LP little a. But he would have been covered for that. If yeah, he, he would have been covered with, with everything. And even if he had you know, small, dense LDL particles on his advanced lipid test, he would have been treated for that. So perhaps if we checked a fibrinogen on him, perhaps if we checked an insulin level on him, those things may have been high. They probably would have been, but even then you could argue that they were covered near the end. In mm-hmm. other words, he was treated as if he was, had metabolic syndrome. He could have been tested for sleep apnea and treated that way. He could have had an LPPLA2 inflammatory biomarker to see if he had active inflammation. Obviously, he probably did uh, near the end. What would James Ehrlich have done if he came to see you? Exactly as he was, besides saying, all right, I need to get a sleep apnea test on you, what else could you have done? Hopefully, I would have instituted the therapy as soon as I appreciated the value of combination lipid therapy. I would have looked at advanced lipids and done inflammatory biomarkers and see if they were elevated. I would have gotten LDL maybe down to about 50. And certainly the new guidelines developed by the American Diabetes Association, American College of Cardiology, suggested in patients with severe metabolic syndrome, their ApoB should now be below 
80. And that would be my goal, is to get ApoB, whatever measures that are necessary. I would have added a fibrate fairly early because of the Diacore study, a study that looked at diabetics and looked at combination therapy of statins and phenofibrate. Certainly, I'm a big believer in niospan. So my goal would have been to get his ApoB below 80, also to make sure that he had an inflammation under control. So I would have ordered an LPPLA2 and advanced lipid test, looked at ApoB, and obviously you mentioned sleep apnea. If he had it, he would have had one of the modalities and been remeasured to make sure that that's under control. James Ehrlich of Athrotech, thank you again for coming on Lipid Luminations. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals.